The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Well, it's February 16th, and it's an opportunity for us to move on from Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day was a lovely opportunity to kind of immerse ourselves in love and the deliciousness of relationship. And those of you that sat at the Sunday morning sitting that we had here heard Gil talk about a quality that we have in our minds called elevation. And elevation is sort of an enjoyment at seeing someone else give love to someone else. So it's a second person giving love to a third person or appreciation or doing something kind. So elevation is, in my mind, I remember driving through the Golden Gate Bridge toll plaza one time, and the person that was collecting the tolls had this gorgeous, beautiful smile on their face, and they were just transformed. And you know how those folks usually look. They're kind of into their sounds in the earphones or, you know, not usually at present. This person was so present. I said, wow, what happened? And they said, oh, the person in front of you just paid for you. And they also paid for the next car behind. And I thought, oh, what a, what a sweet experience. The opportunity to experience elevation. So today, it's two days past Valentine's Day, and I'd like to take the opportunity to reflect on what I'm calling comfort at a time of loss. So we'll take just a little bit of time to think about comfort at a time of loss, and I'd like to reflect a little bit on both the Christian, Jewish, and Islamic traditions, and also on our particular Theravadan Buddhist tradition. So what do we know from these traditional teachings about times of loss and comfort? Well, first of all, we know, particularly from the Theravadan teachings, that times of loss are part of our lives. They are with us probably every day if we're completely alert. I think about a newspaper article that I saw. I think this was over the weekend. And it says, the headline says, War is hell for states returning vets. And when you read the article... It talks about how the veterans from the Afghanistan and Iraqi wars have, of course, struggled during the combat experience. But then when they return home, there's more struggles. Their families oftentimes experience divorce or separation or estrangement. Uh, There are a number of reports of... Um, child abuse or spouse abuse. And so these people come home and they're troubled and there's uh, hell, according to what the headline said. So in our Theravadan tradition, the statement is made, and it was among the first of the teachings of the man that we call the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, 2,500 years ago, the statement is made that life has unsatisfactoriness. And in fact, as we are present for our lives, we will notice more and more unsatisfactoriness. The more present we are and the more aware and attuned, the more we notice that around us in this world are people that are experiencing hell. And that this hell is often connected with loss of something that we love. 
And so the first of the four noble truths is that life does have an unsatisfactoriness to it. When this teaching was first translated from the original text, the Theravadan texts that had been preserved by monastics in Sri Lanka for thousands of years, the translations into English were done by people that lived in the Victorian age. And so it was kind of the late 1800s British people who were there on assignment or in some cases, academics or people that were interested in what these ancient texts had. The Theravadan texts had the uh, four noble truths, the first being this about unsatisfactoriness. And when the translation was made, they chose the word suffering. And so when I first began hearing about Buddhism and learning about Buddhism, I was told Buddhism is kind of a, you know, it's a droopy, gloomy sort of a way of looking at things. The the idea is life is filled with suffering. You can't get away from it. And so I thought, well, I don't need that. So I just kind of put that on the shelf and I had many other opportunities to look at Buddhist thought and didn't because I had this preconception that I didn't want to create any more suffering for me and I didn't particularly want to align myself with a philosophy that said that life is has inevitable suffering. And it took a while for me to encounter enough suffering in my life personally that all of a sudden then I was interested in this. And I thought, boy, (laughs) yeah. I was at a point in my life where my wife of 25 years had been through about eight years of dealing with breast cancer and then died. And I thought, you know, that's really the ultimate of suffering. You, You work as hard as you can for eight years. And we were raising two children at the time and I was running a business that we owned And so we're trying to keep all of those balls in the air and helping her with her treatments and keeping that whole experience moving forward. And then she dies. And I went into a pit of depression and ended up reading a book that was written by Pema Chodron called When Things Fall Apart. And it's a wonderful book if you haven't encountered it. It's short, short chapters. It's very similar to the book in in some ways to the book that Gil wrote. Uh, The chapters are very clear and distinct. And she takes the first noble truth, this thought that life has unsatisfactoriness, and lays it out in a way that is very understandable. You know, we are human beings. We want things to be nice and pleasant and comfortable. And so it's very normal for us to be looking on the positive side, to be looking for good results. And so at some point during the book, she says, inevitably, things will fall apart. And I had just experienced my life falling apart, so I was very attuned to it. And then she goes into the further teachings, the others of the Four Noble Truths, that there is a cause for this falling apart. There's a cause for this anguish and suffering. And the cause is that we get attached to things that we inevitably, as human beings, we fall in love, we um, decide that someone else or something else is very important to us. And the more time we spend with it and the more we invest in that relationship, the closer and more connected we become. And inevitably, that relationship will change. Either the person will 
move on or there'll be separation or they'll die or there'll be a change of some sort. And so those first three are a little bit uh, difficult. It says that, you know, uh, there will be loss and that the reason that we have loss is because we come up, become attached. And then finally, uh, in this thought of things falling apart, there comes that there is a solution. There is a way of dealing, of finding comfort, of finding a way to move forward even in the midst of the loss and the unsatisfactoriness. And the way is to let go, to notice the attachments, and to let go of the attachments. And that not only do we have the counsel or the teaching that we can let go, that it's a natural process that human beings over years of generations of living, we have learned ways of being able to let go, that there is actually a path that will strengthen our ability to let go. And the path is the Eightfold Path. And so those are the Four Noble Truths. And I have to say that compared to the comfort that was offered earlier in my experience through Christianity and through my experience with Christian teachings, it was a difficult pill to swallow. That there is inevitable suffering was reassuring to me. I had encountered that myself. And that there was a cause that was helpful and to know that there was a solution was also helpful. But I compared that to teachings that I had when I was more in high school, in junior high school. Remember how important it was when I first heard the 23rd Psalm. The 23rd Psalm was in history written by the the man that we know as King David. And he was a psalm writer. He lived his life as a shepherd in the beginning, and so often in his psalms references to a shepherd and to the relationship of a shepherd to his flock came in. And I remember how when I first heard this, the Lord maketh me to lie down in green pastures. I just thought, wow, what a guy, you know. (laughs) I want to sign up for this. (laughs) And it goes on that there's protection and there's comfort and that you don't have to worry about famines because even when a famine comes, the Lord will provide. And that he will even anoint your head you know, was, you know, just out of the blue. And so I now look back at that kind of comfort as being uh, possibly helpful, but being more fantasy or more um, uh, fictional and more mythical that really life doesn't have anointing available to us uh, without our participating. But the Buddhist tradition, the Theravadan tradition, says yes, that that anointing is there, but it's at your own creation. It's at our own creation. So it's not some being or force in the universe that will come down and make us lie in green pastures and anoint us. But it is ourselves, by virtue of realizing that the loss, the suffering, the challenge that we have is inevitable. It's just going to be there. That's just the way life is. No apologies for it. No explanations for it. It's just To be in a human life, to be a human being, is to wish for good things for ourselves and for others. And therefore, 
to find inevitable loss. And so the comfort then is, first of all, to wake up to the way things are, and then second of all, to realize that we, in ourselves, in our approach to the loss and the tragedy and the confusion and so forth, we have the capability of freedom, of being free of the tug, of the pain, of the suffering. So in a way, I think of the Theravadan teachings about comfort as being more harsh, but deeply comforting. So it's not that there, there will be a balm, a, a blanket that can sort of protect you temporarily, but we permanently have this capability in ourselves. And it's not dependent on some capricious deity or some external circumstance. So we don't have to hope and pray and say the right things and have the right rituals. That isn't our comfort. That may appear to be in some ways comforting, and it may give us short-term comfort or it may kind of help us over tight spots. For some folks, it may be all they need. But that the teaching, the Theravadan teaching then, is that that comfort is ours. That we haven't had to go anywhere to have it. We haven't had to create anything or do anything special to make it happen. We just need to wake up. And when we're fully awake and fully present, then we can notice the loss, the sense of loss, the suffering for what it is. We became attached. We can let go. So part of uh, the difficulty, I think, of Theravadan teachings is that it can be a little bit dry or humorless uh, in addition to not providing easy external comfort, uh, there's not a lot of jokes that deal with Buddhist thought and practice. So I thought just for the heck of it, I'd bring along a little bit of humor. Has anybody heard of William Archibald Spooner? <laughs> well, I, Spoonerisms are one of uh, the great gifts, I think, of our connection with British literature. William Archibald Spooner uh, lived from 1884 to 1930, and he was a famous Oxford don for whom is named this linguistic phenomenon of Spoonerisms. So he worked for 60 years at Oxford University, taught history, uh, was also... Um, an ordained minister in the Anglican Church. So he became famous for these little mixings of parts of words. And I'll just read a few of them for you. So my favorite in speaking of the 23rd Psalm David, who wrote the 23rd Psalm, urges us to see that the Lord is a loving shepherd and that the Lord brings us things like a loving shepherd would. He guides us in where we need to go. And even if we go through the valley of the shadow of death, that he's there and he's guiding us. So the Lord is a loving shepherd. Well, Reverend Spooner is very famous for, during one of his sermons, putting out very loudly that the Lord is a shoving leopard. He was marrying a couple, and he turned to the groom and he said, It is customary to cuss the bride. 
he was leading people to their uh, seats, I guess, at the beginning of a service, just before the service. And he noticed that someone wasn't quite in the right place. So he said, Marden me, Padam, this pie is occupied. Can I sew you to another sheet? <laughs> Finally, uh, thinking about this thing of comfort, he was offering a, a comforting sermon at one point, and uh, he was speaking about our lives as human beings and so forth. And he said that really at the heart of our difficulty is a half-warmed fish instead of a half-formed wish. (laughs) He went to see his boss at the uh, college, Oxford, at one point. And uh, his boss was the dean of the college. And he blurted out, Is the bean dizzy? Reverend Spooner, I think, uh, maybe very innocently and unintentionally, had quite a following. People came from all over the country and came to his services in hopes of hearing one of these great Spoonerisms. The most interesting one that I have heard of is that he was offered dinner at a special uh, remembrance one time and uh, somebody spilled wine on the tablecloth. And uh, so he he noticed that the hostess came over with salt and very quickly put salt on top of the wine. I guess that's the way you handle a wine spill on cloth. So the next time he was at a dinner, he accidentally spilled some salt on the tablecloth and poured wine on it. So he was a good teacher. I think he, in his deeply uh, committed and intentional way, wanted us to know that the Lord was a loving shepherd, that we as human beings have resources. And so the Theravadan tradition changes the viewpoint from saying that you know, we have external resources. We have a, a, a shepherd who will guide and provide for us. Changes that right around and says that you don't have a loving shepherd. And in fact, you can rely on the fact that you're going to get into tight spots. You, know, you may walk through the valley of the shadow of death and it may be hard. There may be some hard times ahead but that we do have the resource of our awareness and our ability to choose how we respond to external losses, tragedies. So it's interesting to compare the three traditions, Christianity, Buddhist, and Islam. All three hold very dear the 23rd Psalm and Uh, King David and his teachings about the Lord being a loving shepherd. So those three traditions offer comfort in a particular way. So what I'd like to leave us with today, before we get into an opportunity for exchange and response from you, is the teaching that, to me, is the counterpart to the 23rd Psalm that is very present in the Theravadan tradition. And this is the teaching of the five remembrances. So the five remembrances are a practice that we can use in our daily lives Um, the suggestion is that at least once a day, if we kind of remember these five remembrances, they'll reinforce us, they'll help us. They'll help us let go of childish wishes of the half-warmed fish. Uh, 
that they'll let us go of these half-warm fishes and really find something more substantial, more effective, more present for us. So I'll just go through the five remembrances. And I'll put these in kind of the language of Thich Nhat Hanh. They're present in the uh, suttas that were preserved for 2,500 years and that have been translated. The language is, uh, depends on the translator and so forth. I think Thich Nhat Hanh, the monk who lived in Vietnam during the Vietnam War, now lives in France. I think he captures the language almost as well as it can be done. <clears throat> so the first remembrance is, I cannot avoid sickness. You remember that when the Buddha was Siddhartha Gautama, the prince, before he had gone through the change experience to become fully awakened, he came to a town and noticed a sick person. And he had never before seen a sick person. His father protected him. His father, the king, wanted his son to have nothing but positive experiences as he grew up. And so when the, the Siddhartha Gotama young man came to town and saw a sick person, it was quite arresting for him. What is wrong with this person? So he saw a sick person. And that was an awaking. It was a, it was a coming to reality, coming to presence. So the first of the remembrances is, I cannot avoid being sick. Second one is, I am of the nature to grow old. I cannot avoid growing old. So that was the second of the awakenings that Siddhartha had was to see an old person. Never seen old people, only seen young. The third of the remembrances is, I cannot avoid death. I am of the nature to die. And so this relates to the first of the Four Noble Truths, that when we incarnate into a physical body and we become people, we are on a path that inevitably leads to death. It's just part of the deal. And that everybody else who is in a physical body, who is alive, who was born and is living, you can guarantee they're going to die. So that's the third of the remembrances. And then the fourth is helping us with the attachments. It says, All that I I love and all that I hold dear is of a nature to change. All that I love and all that I hold dear is of a nature to change. I cannot avoid losing all that I love and all that I hold dear. I cannot avoid it. I may not lose it, but I cannot avoid it. So our animals, our relatives, our children, our artistic creations, our bodies, all that I love and all that I hold dear is of a nature to change. And then finally, the fifth remembrance is about what we do. And it says, My actions are the ground of my being. I cannot avoid the consequences of my actions. So that's helpful to remember that our being in this world comes from our actions. It's sort of the sum total of our actions. And so do we use our actions in a way that's beneficial to ourselves and to others? Do we offer support and comfort 
to others in the inevitable challenge of life? Do we offer support and comfort to ourselves? The Buddha very famously said, there is not a person in this world or in 50 universes, if you looked in 50 universes, who deserves your love more than yourself. So he's reminding us that we have this ability to provide support and comfort and love and nourishment and help to ourselves. And to not forget that, that that is the beginning of our being a resource to other people. So those are the five remembrances. And again, completely objectively, I think you could stand back and you could say they're kind of droopy. They're a little bit sad. You know, they're kind of harsh, I guess. You know, where's the, the bomb from Gilead? Where, where's that honey from heaven? You know, where's the... We want a little, you know, something to hang on to, something to pump us up here. And the remembrances tell us that it's not outside. We're not going to get that honey coming from the outside. We may, if we get really lucky and something good happens, every once in a while, hey, that's good. That's all to the good. But don't get attached to it because it's going to change. And so the five remembrances are our opportunity to sort of let go of wanting that comfort blanket, wanting to be Linus dragging around that blanket all the time, and realizing that, you know, the more comfort blankets we hang on to, the more trouble we're going to have because it's going to wear out or it's going to change or who knows what. So those are some thoughts about comfort at a time of loss. And I hope that you have gotten the drift that uh, there's, I think, some harsh news when we really see how life is. But also there's some really good news that when we really see how we are and what our human nature is, we have developed in ourselves and available to us skills for dealing with loss and tragedy. And so that inevitable unsatisfactoriness of life can be let go of. We can develop an awareness where we can realize the true nature of things and we can find a way to move forward, really, with a light heart. Just as Reverend Spooner did with his shoving leopard. So those are my thoughts. And I know that we all have had experiences with dealing with when things fall apart. And... Uh, have found our way through. We wouldn't be here today had we not found resources in ourselves to be able to sit and meditate. I often say to people, if a person is a meditator, you can guarantee that they've got some strength and some character because you can't sit and just be there with gloomy thoughts all the time. If you sit and you have gloomy thoughts, you're going to be turning on the TV or you're going to be you know, reading a, a comic book or you know, doing something to get away from it. So we as meditators have done a lot of work in being able to live in the midst of what may be bad news, but still to have a light heart. So that's what I'd like to offer just as my thoughts. And then we have about little more than 15 minutes, it would be a real treat for me and I hope for you to do a little exchanging on this subject of comfort at times of loss. And we have two microphones. Uh, I'm going to push this one to green for on, so this one's ready to go. Who can I pass this on to? We'll use the microphones because we are recording this talk today. So be very helpful to have your thoughts 
and use the microphone. So. Thanks for coming over to get it. <laughs> and if you'd say your name first. My name's, <clears throat> my name's Mary. Oh. That's not me. Is that the microphone? Huh? I don't know. We'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah, talk right into it, right into it. Um, Part of the idea <clears throat> that we cannot avoid <clears throat> the consequences um, of our actions is, uh, was very freeing for me because um, it was also tremendous responsibility. Uh, when I stopped, I come from a tradition where um, I grew up thinking of God as a punishing God. And when I let go of, of reward, punishment, God, it was just like a tremendous breakthrough. But that meant for me that I had to take responsibility. It wasn't Satan or anybody else making me or tempting me to do something. It was my self-centeredness. And um, that, uh, that was also freeing, although it, it added a lot of responsibility. So... I can't out of avoid, uh, nobody's out there punishing me, but there is a consequence to myself or to others when I'm self-centered. And um, strangely enough, I, as I say, that's, that's been freeing. And I'm reading a book by Pima also. It's called uh, Start Where You Are. Mm -hmm. And it deals with this Tonglen. Um, Tonglen, is that Tonglen where you take in the sufferings of others? Tonglen, I think it's Tonglen, a, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the resources we have to grow up are, are, are just, I'm so grateful for all the authors and all of the speakers that have um, helped me grow up. Wow. Thanks, Mary. My name is Maya. Hi, Maya. Hi. So um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how emotions fit into all of this because where I struggle is sort of finding myself saying, oh, I'm not attached, but then really I'm not attending to the emotions that are underneath it. So how do you have that non-attachment but also honor the emotions? And is saying you know, that we don't have to suffer, does that mean that we shouldn't feel the sadness, and how do you, how do you hold those both? Wow. Well, <laughs> that's, that's another Dharma talk at least. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I think you get what I'm saying, but just because, or are there more teachings that get more specific about, yes. how, because it's easy to intellectually understand yeah. that? Yeah. I know exactly uh, where you're coming from, and, and it's a wonderful question. Um, you know, a lot of people look at Theravadan Buddhism in particular as more of a psychology than a religion, because religion talks about, you know, beginnings and endings and deities and what happens after death and stuff like that. And the Theravadan teachings are pretty much just about how we get through this life. And there are a lot of insights that are offered about what we do with emotions. That, uh, first of all, that emotions uh, are not to be avoided or put in the closet or cut off in any way. And that uh, our opportunity is to be present and notice those emotions. And as we notice those emotions, we realize that we are not the emotion. So we can be in the midst of fear, say, for instance. And if we have developed a spacious awareness, we can hold that fear without squashing it or blocking it in any way. But we can notice that. But even in the midst of it, we can still make good choices. And so rather than making the immediate reactionary choice, we can say, yes, 
this is a very frightening place to be now. What is the best way for me to respond? And so that's kind of the essence of it, I think. Um, I work with Kara, as does Bud Silver back there behind that column. And we have the opportunity of getting together with people that have just had a loss in their lives, uh, usually a loved one, uh, sometimes of a natural death, sometimes of a suicide death or a sudden death of some sort. And you're absolutely right. Times of loss inevitably have lots of emotion. I mean, we feel that our bodies are just consumed with feelings and energy. Um, and so it's not easy. Uh, it's not as though, you know, just reading a Buddhist text or meditating is going to make that go away. But the what the teachings do say is that there's a spacious quality in our awareness that can hold it all. And so, you know, even a death, um, even something that's really in our face. I think of um, Viktor Frankl, the guy that lived in the concentration camps, a Viennese psychiatrist, imprisoned with people that were suffering from hunger and sickness and, of course, disappearing and dying. He lived in the midst of this. And his book that he wrote afterwards, Man's Search for Meaning, he talked, he said that there were people that could live in the midst of the concentration camps and still be responsive to others in a positive way. They could share a crust of bread or they could be comforting even just with words or whatever. And so I I think that's an example of the Theravadan teachings, which are that there's this spacious quality, that no matter how bad the news, we can, in our awareness, we can be spacious enough to know the depth of that feeling and yet not be consumed by it and not react just to it. And so that's uh, the work that Bud and I do at CARA, is helping people develop that spacious quality so that even though they've just lost their spouse or their child or whatever, that they can begin building around it. They can find opportunities in life and that they can live intentionally and that they can choose And so rather than falling into a reactive pattern of using substances or becoming a workaholic or, you know, whatever, or uh, rather than making unhealthy decisions, that we can continue to make healthy decisions that lead us to freedom and are good for ourselves and good for others. So that's a little bit of reflection on it. And, and I just encourage you to continue looking at to the Theravadan teachings and also to continue a meditative practice because this is how we do this. Uh, you know, the old saying goes, don't just do something, sit there. You know, and that's the <laughs> I think that's good advice. Don't just go out and do something reactively. Sit down, be spacious, you know. Uh, one of the beautiful examples of how this works, I think, is in pain management. They've done lots of research on people that have chronic pain and have discovered that they can reduce their pain medications, even down to zero in some cases, through meditating and through developing a mindfulness where you can just be present for the pain but not consumed by it. Same thing with the emotions. So, yeah, thanks for the... That's a great question. Up here. I'm not sure if I know how to ask this because it's, it's, it's part of what you just went over. What's you, your name? My name's Myla. Hi, Myla. Hi. I, um, I understand the making space and having... Embo- you know, you embody the entire thing, but how do you actually make the space and... And limit it in a way where it's there, but you're not really feeling it because you're intellectualizing what what you need to be and say and and how you 
um, want to respond to something without actually, I guess you're detached from it, but in a way, I, I see the confusion, or, or for me, you want to feel it, but you're, um, you're splitting yourself from it, even though you, you look at it as an, something that's part of you, but in a different space, not necessarily at that moment. I mean, I understand the here and now, and you can put yourself in the here and now, but you might not have um, that emotion with you at that now time. I, it's just a really... <laughs> I can't really... Yeah, well, uh, it, it's it's a challenging uh, concept. Uh, the idea is that you don't separate yourself from your emotions or your pain, or um, you, you don't separate yourself from it. You just realize that you're a big enough self that it can be within you. It can be part of you, but it isn't only all of you. And. And so that's, uh, you know, just, uh, again, it's not creating an intellectual space where the pain lives or something like that. It's saying, yes, this pain is in my body, but I am, with my awareness, I am large enough to contain it without just responding to it and without feeling totally identified and consumed by it. So um, just to be really clear that when the teaching is that we become attached and freedom is in letting go, it doesn't mean that that's easy um, or that it's simple or it's straightforward. Uh, And it isn't letting go in the sense of getting rid of it. It's letting go of hanging on to it as us, to, to being identified and consumed. So I, one of the great pastimes I have is being out in nature. And there's many stories about people that have gone out into nature and either have gotten lost or gotten into a forest fire or something has happened. And the stories that I pay attention to are the ones where people realize that even though they were in trouble and something they were lost or something had happened, that they nevertheless were still able to make positive decisions and and deal effectively with what was going on. And so the the counterpart to that, when I was, I worked at Outward Bound, I was an Outward Bound instructor uh, early on when I was in college and graduate school. And we had a young man who was in his Outward Bound group. We were up in the woods of uh, southern Canada, Ontario, in northern Minnesota. And the group was walking along, and this one young man needed to have a cigarette, and so he jumped behind a tree and let everybody else kind of walk on thinking he would have his cigarette and then catch up to him. And by the time he'd finished his cigarette, he couldn't hear anybody, couldn't find anybody, and he panicked. And in one hand he had a compass, and in the other hand he had a map. And he started running, fell, left the compass, left the map, just just kind of left them where they were and kept running. And eventually, three days later, we found him out in the middle of a swamp, and he had bug bites all over him, and, and he had gone through a very difficult experience. And so, you know, I think that's the counterpart. That, that's this thinking, oh my gosh, this fear that I have is me, and all I can do is just run, you know. And uh, so what the invitation of the teachings of 2,500 years is to realize that that panic is very profound and very urgent, but it's not just us. It doesn't determine us, and it doesn't determine our response. And we can make an effective response, even in the midst of all of that panic. So I, I hope that's helpful. It's, it's not easy, and I, I know from sitting long retreats that uh, it's a work. It's, it's a work. It takes a lifetime, I think, to come there, but I do see that living intentionally in the midst of the pain and the confusion and the loss and the tragedy is really a gift. That's 
Yeah, I'm glad somebody told me that I can do that. Because I can't always do that, but it's a challenge, and hopefully I can do that as much as I can. <laughs> well, we're just about out of time. <clears throat> so let us get into a meditative posture, and we'll have just one last little sharing of merit in the tradition So just to hold in our hearts that we do have comfort. And when things look bleak and dark and confusing, that that's a human experience. It happens to all of us. It'll happen many, many times. And just to strengthen the quality of awareness that we have so that we can hold it all and still live intentional lives in the midst of it. And that the wish that this teaching and any value that has come from our being together today is available to all people in our world through the lives we touch and even lives that we don't touch, that there is a message, there is a way to find freedom in the midst of times of loss. And that hearing and knowing this way is an opportunity for us all, that we may all find freedom in the midst of the challenge of human life. So this sharing of merit, sharing of value, may all beings be safe from inner and outer harm. May all beings be happy just as they are. May all beings be healthy and strong. May all beings be at ease, living vibrantly in the world, just as it is, just as the world is. And may all beings be free. May we find the way to let go of confusion, let go of longing, and find freedom in this very life today, all of our everyday experiences, and may all beings in the world find that freedom. <clears throat>